this is September 9th, 2010 in Dublin on Krishna's qualities, his personality. Any other reason why we want to meditate on Krishna's qualities? What have we been discussing? Yes. It actually is what develops our spiritual body. So as we give up material thoughts and desires, our material subtle body dissolves. Our material subtle body is the cause of our taking one gross body after another, and then our actual spiritual body develops. Just like our material mind is made up of material thoughts and desires, our spiritual body is made up of spiritual thoughts. And as we think about spiritual things, we develop that body. And remember we talked about the time of death, whatever you think about, determines your next body. So if we're thinking about Krishna while we're in this body, then we're far more likely to think about Krishna at the time of death. If during my life I'm thinking about my bank account and my wardrobe and my family and my this and my that and the other thing, then I'm going to be thinking about that at the time of death. I'm going to be, oh, what about my new shoes? <laughs> Instead of what about Krishna? So, sadhana bhakti, or as Krishna calls it, abhyas yoga in the Bhagavad the practice yoga, means that we make an effort. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati speaks about voluntary thinking about Krishna and spontaneous thinking about Krishna. Of course, spontaneous is also voluntary. It's not forced. But in other words, one is I'm making a conscious effort. Okay, now I'm going to think about Krishna. And as love develops, that just happens. So today we want to look at Something that's not discussed so much. I think Krishna's six opulences are often discussed. And Krishna's qualities are sometimes discussed. And Krishna's personality is almost never discussed. Although it's also a nectar devotion. And if we're going to talk about God as a person, remember we were quoting from Bhagavad Gita, 8.6, Yam Yam Babi Saram Bhavam, and 8.7, Mama Yusmaram Yuja Cha, think of me and fight. And then we go on, where Krishna says, one should meditate upon the Supreme, this is from 8 9, upon the Supreme Person as the one who knows everything, as he who's the oldest, who's the controller, who's smaller than the smallest, who's the maintainer of everything, who's beyond all material conception, who's inconceivable, and who is always a person. He's luminous like the sun, he's transcendental beyond this material nature. Now, it's interesting that in the Sanskrit it doesn't say anything about person. But Srila Prabhupada is mentioning that here because these. All these qualities must be a person, a controller. How can something be the controller? It's not a person. You know, this table cannot control the room. Smaller than the smallest maintainer of everything. How can you have a maintainer? That's not a person. Luminous like the sun, transcendental purport. The process of thinking of the Supreme is mentioned in this verse. The foremost point is that he's not impersonal or void. One cannot meditate on something impersonal or void. That is very difficult. The process of thinking of Krishna, however, is very easy and is factually stated herein. First of all, the Lord is Purusha, a person. We think of the person Rama and the person Krishna. So many times people talk about meditation as you meditate on just something impersonal. How do you meditate on something impersonal? How do you do it? I mean, they have to make up something. I remember when I was at college... This group came, gave a presentation. They said, meditate on bubbles. Yes? I think that Buddha meditated on a flag of grass. 
things like that. A blade of grass, bubbles. Well, he, or I don't know if he actually did. I think some of his followers do. Uh, candle flame, or um, sound of one hand clapping, or something like that. So something, but how do you meditate on that? It's very difficult. It's not natural. It's natural to think about a, pe- a person. We do it all the time. We're always thinking about people. At least we're thinking about ourselves. I mean, right? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to do? How am I going to make money? How am I going to deal with this difficult person at work? Or else we're thinking about, oh, I have to deal with this boss. Or I'm going to go see my father today. Or I wonder how my son is doing. Or how's my friend who just got out of the hospital. We're thinking about people. Or we're thinking about the latest, you know, sports stars, latest football player, and the latest singer, or the latest movie star, some politician, and we're thinking about people because we naturally want to think about Krishna. Now, to be a person, we say someone is a person. We were speaking the other day about one difference between living and non-living is that living has consciousness, consciousness and and a whole discussion which we signed sort of truncated because it was like free will. Person has free will, right? This this cartel has no free will. You can't say, "Don't throw me in the air, pop that. I'm getting dizzy," right? It has no. It can't say no. It has to cooperate with me. Whereas a person can say, "No, I don't want it to be." So another attribute of a person is personality. I remember once we were at a shopping center and my kids wanted to go into the pet store to see the animals. Going into a pet store is kind of like a really cheap zoo. And while they were looking at the animals there, I, I was looking at one of the books there on raising hermit crabs. Do you know what hermit crabs are? You know what a little crab is on the shore? You know what a crab is? little has a little shell and usually has some big claws. So there's a kind of crab that instead of living in the sand, it finds an abandoned shell and it crawls in there. Usually something like a whelk shell, like a variety of a conch, and it, it crawls in and it makes that its home. And it's for some reason it's called a hermit crab. And some people keep them as pets. So there was this little booklet about how to keep a hermit crab as pets. And the author was saying, that each hermit crab has its own personality. He said that if you put an obstacle in front of a hermit crab, some of them will just stop and turn back. Some of them will burrow under it. Some of them will crawl over it. Some of them will crawl around it. Some of them will push it aside. And this person was saying that as you get to know your hermit crabs, you'll notice that they have some consistent behavior. That the same hermit crab will usually turn around and go back every time. Or the same hermit crab will just push it out of the way. And these are some kind of traits we find also in human beings. But not only in, in all creatures. I mean, if you can find it in hermit crabs. In fact, there's even been studies like that about plants, which I find pretty amazing. That sometimes people who keep plants, the same, several specimens of the same variety of plant, will find that the different plants respond differently to light and to music and to the environment. But what to speak of 
uh, higher animals. If any of you have ever kept like dogs or cats or cows or, you know, they each have their own personality. They're not all the same. Some of them are more jealous, some of them are more aggressive, some of them are more friendly, some of them are more helpful. And at our, I was just recently at our Bhaktivedanta Manor in London. There's one gentleman there that for 27 years, every morning and evening, brings vegetable scraps for the cows and bulls. He goes to like the markets, you know, and gets their leftover cabbage leaves and brings them to the animals. And he was telling me about each of the animals, what their names are, and what their personalities are like. Some of them are shy, some of them are aggressive, some of them are very friendly. And anyone who works with animals can tell you that. Each animal has a personality. And that's certainly true about people. And most people spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out what kind of personality they have. This is one reason why people are interested in their horoscope. Or, you know, fortune teller some sort of vocational aptitude test. What kind of a person am I? What do I like to do? And, and when people are looking for someone to marry, what do they look at? What kind of a person is this? You know, well, I'm kind of a shy person. I don't know, you know, do I really want to marry an outgoing party type? Do I want to marry someone who's like me? Do I want to marry someone who's not like me? And although we can categorize people into different types, there's really as many personalities as there are people. So are any of you familiar with ways of categorizing personality? Have you ever studied that? One of the most famous is called Myers-Briggs, where you can have various, I think it's 16 different combinations of four types. So, you know, whether you like to do this sort of thing or that sort of thing. There's, uh, of course, then there's the Ayurvedic personality types. Any of you familiar with the Ayurvedic types? So generally we talk about the Ayurvedic types in terms of the body, but they also refer to the mind, to the personality. There's the kapha, vata, and pitta. And pitta is fiery, vata is airy, and kapha is earthy. So these also are different types. The vata person is can jump from one thing to another, very creative. A pitta person is very determined. A kapha person is very cautious, uh, very loyal. So and then there's different combinations. A person can be kapha pitta or kapha vata. And you have a number of different combinations of personality types. And there's many other studies that talk about different types of personalities. I mean, certainly if you look at astrology, of course... The Western astrology is a little different from Eastern astrology, but very similar principles. In Western astrology, we say our sign is our sun sign. And of course, Western astrology, the sun sign is no longer where the sun is in the sky. <laughs> they've, they've shifted it. In Eastern astrology, your main sign is the, what's called the rising sign, or the lagna, which is different than the sun sign. And the se second most important sign is the moon sign. So according to the, the 12 astrological signs, one has a different personality. So if one has Capricorn rising, one will have a different type of personality than if one has Aries rising. And we can categorize according to personality types, that each sign represents a certain kind of personality. And then you have the, how does that fit together? Well, how does it fit together with what sign the moon is in and what house the moon is in? And you can put together a conglomerate, a person who's skilled in astrological science, which there aren't that many of today. People ask me about astrology. My answer is, I believe in astrology, but I don't believe in many astrologers. <laughs> so 
a skilled astrologer is able to put together a composite and get, you know, because our, our chart is unique. Even twins aren't born at exactly the same moment. And can put together a composite by which house and which sign the planets are in and say, okay, this is the kind of personality you have. And if they're a good astrologer, their conclusion will be extremely accurate. You'll read it and you'll say, oh yeah, I am like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do like that kind of thing. I do have these kind of habits. So we can talk about just a, a few examples of what we mean by personality, just to give you some idea. Uh, one very simple example is if you think about yourself, are you more a cautious person or a risk-taking person? So all of us have some caution. You're not going to find somebody who has no caution. I mean, they wouldn't live very long. <laughs> and everyone takes some risks, because if you never take any risk, you wouldn't live very long either. You know, you have to be willing to walk out of your home and pick a carrot out of your garden or go to the supermarket. Right? And you've got to be willing to look both ways when you cross the street. So each of us have both caution and risk-taking in our personality. But on, the, on a scale, if we had extremely cautious over here and extremely risk-taking over here, we'd fall somewhere along that scale. So just think about if there was a line in the middle and you had to choose, am I more of a risk-taking person or am I more of a cautious person? And it's, these different types have different attributes. Now, I'd like to talk about the fact, two things, that each of these personality attributes have both a positive and a negative component to them, depending on how they're used, and that really they're all neutral. So let's look at first a cautious person. You all familiar with the modes of material nature? You all had some? So the Bhagavad Gita talks about three modes of nature. The scientists want to discover what kind of laws are prevalent all over the universe. They want to imagine that the laws of math and science and physics that they understand on this planet operate the same way on Jupiter. And, you know, they might not. There might be different laws of mathematics and physics on Jupiter than there are on the Earth. How do we know? And nor do the scientists fully understand the laws of physics and chemistry and mathematics on this planet. Otherwise, they wouldn't be revising their theories. They don't just improve their theories, you know, they revise them. In any case, they're looking for some sort of law that's applicable all over the universe. And in Bhagavad Gita says, Krishna says, the law that's applicable all over the universe is that there's goodness, passion, and ignorance. And that's what's running everything. And Krishna gives the attributes that ignorance involves foolishness, laziness, violence, uh, insults. The mode of passion involves the search for honor and prestige. wanting to be a good person. What most religions in the world today propagate is the mode of passion. Be a good, righteous person. Have a nice family, have an honorable job, contribute to society, become materially successful, and have people glorify you for your righteousness. And the mode of goodness is, comes from a sense of uh, spiritual duty and peacefulness, and harmony, of, of balance, as we say about the mode of goodness, knowledge, uh, illumination, satisfaction, gravity. So an example that I can give you that should help illuminate this would be that there's a, a story that there were four people working on building a temple. 
just like here we're renting. Maybe someday we'll actually build our own temple. So imagine you're walking by the temple and four people are building it. And you say to the one person, what are you doing? He says, I'm putting one brick on top of another. You go to the next person, what are you doing? He says, I'm working to feed my family. You go to the next person, well, what are you doing? I'm building a temple here so that people can come and worship God. And next person, what are you doing? I'm building a house for my beloved Lord. So that's ignorance, passion, goodness, and transcendence, or spirituality. You have a little bit of a sense there. So let's say that you're a very cautious person in the mode of ignorance. What would a cautious person in the mode of ignorance do? Can you give me some examples? Okay, so it might be in so much anxiety about the consequences of doing something that doesn't do anything. Okay. Some other example of a cautious person in the mode of ignorance. Just afraid to get a job because you're going to be fired. Afraid to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, there's a lot of people like that. A lot of people like that. They're afraid to take action because they're afraid of failure. Yeah. Any more examples of cautious in the mode of ignorance? To drink the same beer every day. Mm -hmm. Go to the same pub, order the same meat, drink the same beer, go to the same job. Hmm? Okay, cautious person in the mode of passion. Very someone who's in the mode of passion and very cautious might stay in the same community his whole life, might really contribute to charity and righteous work in his own community. And it's something that's going to be very safe. He's, he's going to put his time and energy into, into things that he considers to be very safe. He's going to have a career that he considers has a lot of longevity and safety. He's going to give to charity that he considers very safe. Probably won't move around a whole lot. What about a cautious person in the mode of goodness? In the mode of goodness, one uh, tries to get away from materialism mm. and becomes spiritualism. Yes, yeah, so a starting spiritualism. The activities of a person in goodness and passion are often very similar, the, the difference being the mentality. The activities of someone in ignorance are vastly different, but in passion and goodness are often very similar. It's the motivation that's quite different. The person in the mode of passion, their motivation is personal honor and prestige. And the person in the mode of goodness, their motivation is doing good for others, or their motivation is to please God, at least in a general way, or to find knowledge. 
let's say a cautious person in the mode of goodness, they probably will do philosophical investigation uh, within their own community or tradition. They'll engage in, again, good works in, in some place that's going to be very safe within their own community. They'll be looking for knowledge and illumination in a way that doesn't really challenge their boundaries. What about a person in spiritual life who's very cautious by nature? Never explores different religions. Never what? Never explores different religions. May not explore different religions. I'd say you'd find that probably more in, um, in passion. But someone who's in, in really inclined spiritually, who's very cautious, they're, they're, they're going to be someone who's really looking for the truth. I mean, even someone in goodness is going to look for the truth. And also they're um, prepared for coming for session for the accursed people, so always ready to uh, do something if any problem is come. To help other people with their problems. Yeah, I'd say that's particularly in goodness. Yes? He's cautious uh, in his behavior so that he doesn't become entangled in material harm. Okay, so a cautious person in spiritual life will be especially cautious about being entangled in material life. I think you'd find that also in goodness, maybe to a little lesser extent. Uh, the person is very introspective Okay, you're introspective. Any other thoughts? Probably stay at the same surface. I mean, just like we have members of our Hare Krishna movement who've stayed in the same temple for 30 or 40 years. I mean, I know some extreme cases of people who've never left the property, which to me is a little inconceivable. But we have one gentleman like that in London. I've heard he's only left the property maybe two or three times in 35 or 40 years. So, and people who are doing pretty much the same, I mean, that's someone who's very far on the, on the end of being a very cautious person. But someone who's doing pretty much the same jobs every day. Like I was saying about this gentleman who's been feeding the cows every morning and evening for 27 years. I mean, if you're going to be taking care of cows, you definitely would have to be a cautious type person. You know, you, you've got to do it every day, every, no matter what, rain or shine or big festival going on. You know, you've got to be there taking care of the cows. Doesn't Papa give us some example about uh, when we take one step and have one foot firmly on the ground and lift the other foot? You know, in relation to spiritual life, spiritual progress. It could be. I mean, I know that's talked about when uh, Vasudev is giving Kamsa instructions. That's the only place I can think of. All right, let, let's take about, maybe there's another place you're thinking about that. I'm not familiar with. Let's take a person who's a risk taker by nature. What would a risk taker in the mode of ignorance do? Drinking and driving. Drinking and driving. <laughs> okay, good example. Doing things he is not accustomed to doing. Okay, maybe trying a new kind of drug. 
Going to swim when he knows he can't swim. Taking a dare, you know, his friends say, let's race down the highway, and he says, okay, let's do it. Not really thinking about the consequences. Riding a bus without paying. Riding a bus without paying. <laughs> or getting into some really shaky financial scheme. You know, his friends say, hey, why don't you invest in this thing? He doesn't really check it out and invests all this money and loses his money. I mean, at the extreme end, you're going to have criminal activities. But doing things that are very risky, some get-rich-quick scheme, uh, gambling. What about a risk taken in the mode of passion? All the No, activities in the mode of passion are going to look very much like activities in the mode of goodness. But the, what's different is the motivation. Uh, you can think about it that the mode of ignorance you have, you do bad activities for bad reasons. The mode of passion, you do good activities for bad reasons. Mode of goodness, you do good activities for good reasons. And if you're mixed passion ignorance, you do some good activities and some bad activities, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, but usually for bad reasons. So if you're mixed passion ignorance, your motives are generally bad, but your activities are sometimes good and sometimes bad. If you're mixed passion and goodness, your activities are pretty much good, but your motives are sometimes good and sometimes bad. That's a pretty simple way. If I had a little flip chart here, I'd make you a little chart of that. So a risk taker in the mode of passion. Definitely politicians. Definitely politicians. Um, Anyone who's, who's running a, a government or anyone who's in the military is very much influenced by the mode of passion. The, the uh, motivation for a person in the mode of passion is personal status. That's what's driving them, is personal status. Mixed passion, ignorance people are driven by wealth. Uh, ignorance people are driven by immediate physical pleasure and avoidance of physical pain. And goodness people are driven by truth. But the mode of passion, people are doing good works, but their their reason they're doing good works is so they can say, yes, I'm a good person. And not just so they can say that they're a good person, but so other people can say that they're a good person. They're interested in their reputation. That makes them blind to the reaction of their actions. To some extent, yes. If you're if you're really in the mode of passion, you'll take birth again as a human being, and if you're fully in the mode of passion, you'll take birth as a very rich or very powerful human. If like someone, someone would take a risk at the expense of a society, like a politician, he might take some risk, but because he's doing it for his reputation, he's not really thinking of the welfare of the people, or it might be something. Yeah, that, that, yes, that could happen. He injures the people, but he thinks it's benefiting. Because he's thinking mo more about his reputation, although he may think, I'm doing it for the people. Yeah. I have no desire whatsoever to speak about this. <laughs> I really, I mean, just come on. Come on, please. What to say? Nothing you can say. Dumb. I mean, what else can you say? Childish. All right, we'll say one thing about it. According to the Bhagavatam, that's the mode of ignorance. I didn't hear what she was talking about this pastor who wants to burn Korans. But this is, I'll tell you what, let's finish where we are because that's, 
if we have time at the end, we can go there because that's a totally different topic. That topic is, are you a Kanista Majjim or Uttama Bhakta? And this is personality types. So, different topic. Don't want to go. And I have one question. Yes. If why do people want material things? Yeah. There's no good reason. It's like, why do people smoke? No, I, I mean to say, if uh, Lord Krishna lives in everyone's soul, yeah. in everyone's soul, why are they affected by material things? Oh my, that's a long answer. And, and very much again off, off where I want to go right now. So if we have time, okay, I'll try to get to that and that. We'll see how, how time is kind to me. If, if, if we have time, make sure you bring those things up, okay? But I, I, I'm trying to talk about personality. <laughs> So, so far we dealt with the cautious person. Now we're dealing with the risk-taking person. So a risk-taking person in passion, what do they act like? Definitely planning something new. They might try some risky scheme to help people, a risky charity scheme. Right? Not knowing what they could Not like Bush going into Iraq, that was a fairly, I mean, it looked... Yeah, I'm not sure what modes motivated him for that. <laughs> but say, say you, you know, somebody going into a war zone to uh, start a charity project, if you're doing that for your prestige, that's risk-taking in the mode of passion. If you're doing that to help the people there, that's risk-taking in the mode of goodness. So if I say, okay, you know... Uh, we're going to rescue all these refugees. Let's find a, find a helicopter under gunfire and save all the people. If I'm doing it because I want to be a hero, then that's risk taking in the mode of passion. If I'm doing it and I don't care if I'm a hero or not, I just want to save the people, that's risk taking in the mode of goodness. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, in the mode of goodness, you are looking for some reward. It's not pure. Um, but in the mode of goodness, you're looking much more for just a sense of personal satisfaction, that I've done something good. In the mode of goodness, what's motivating you is the sense that I am good. I have done what's true. I have done what's right for my own satisfaction. In the mode of passion, I want to do what's good and what's right so other people recognize that I've done what's good and what's right. And because of that, because I'm looking for other people's accolades, I may sometimes not do what's good and what's right because people don't always give accolades for what's good and what's right. So a person in the mode of passion will only do what's good and what's right if it's going to get them accolades. If it won't, they won't do it. A person in the mode of goodness is going to do what's good and what's right whether it gets them accolades or not because that's not what's driving them. Whereas the person in the mode of passion will say, well, you know, if I'm going to do this and nobody notices, then why bother? Just in relation to Bush again, and his motivation. I mean, couldn't, couldn't you conclude that uh, if his motivation was right, uh, it'd be a more satisfactory outcome, a more satisfactory result? Well, that, that's a, that's again a, a whole other tangent to where I'm trying to go today. But uh, I don't know if that's the case. I, I've, I'm not at all convinced that 
the results on the external plane, the way we calculate them, have anything to do with the rose of material nature. The way that, materially speaking, we calculate success and failure. And the reason I say this is a lot of things done in pure spiritual consciousness under the direct advice of God are sometimes failures on the material platform. And sometimes things done grossly in the mode of ignorance with the worst of motives are successes on the material platform in terms of does the building get built or not? Is money made or not? Is the product sold or not? Are people smiling or not? You know, if, if that's the way we're calculating, is there a good outcome? If our idea of success is, does the project get finished? You know, does the building go up or does it sit half finished? Do people say, oh, that's very nice, or do people criticize? Is money made or is money lost? You know, if we're gonna calculate that way, in terms of success, and I don't think you can at all judge what mode of nature is motivating somebody or whether somebody is in material or spiritual consciousness by that kind of result. If by the result we mean, do people become illuminated with knowledge? Do people become full of spiritual bliss? Do people become full of peace? Do people achieve the, do people become full of equanimity? Do they become free of fear? Do they develop love for all living entities? Then I would agree with you, if we're looking at that kind of result. So that even if the building doesn't get built and you lose money and people are criticizing, are you developing your relationship with God? Is that the fruit? Are you coming closer to Krishna? Are you realizing yourself? Are you gaining transcendent knowledge? Yes, by that fruit you can judge all actions. That's actual success. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it, do you think maybe Bush had a, a, a motive as a motive couldn't? I haven't the foggiest idea. There's a possibility of that. I have no idea. I've never met the man. I mean, seriously, I'm just, I've never met him. Uh, I've, I've read very little about him. I know, I really can't say that I know him even moderately well through third parties. I do keep up with the news, but, but I try to do it in a moderate fashion. I try not to do it excessively. Sometimes I get into reading the news a little excessively, but I, I realize it's not my desire. And I, I don't know him well enough to say. I do know that he believes that he's a religious man. That I can say. Whether he's actually a religious man, I have no idea. I mean, I think I'd have to meet him personally over some period of time to be able to make some assessment like that. But most people are a mixture. Most people have some mixture of the three modes. Most people are not. I mean, if you're totally in the mode of ignorance, then you're just a piece of wood. So no living entity is going to be totally in the mode of ignorance. If you're totally in the mode of goodness, you're a fully transcendent, self-realized being. So we don't meet too many people totally in the mode of goodness. And it's pretty hard to be totally in the mode of passion. You tend to have some mix of goodness and ignorance. And most people have some mix of, of goodness, passion, ignorance. So our final category, a risk taker in Krishna consciousness, a risk taker in transcendence. Anyway, so I, I, I'll assume that Bush has some degree of the mode of goodness in him. I think that's a pretty safe assumption. But he's against abortion. Well, mode of passion, it says in the mode of passion, sometimes you know what should be done and sometimes you don't know what should be done. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Mode of goodness, you always know what's right and what's wrong. 
mode of passion, you, you, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Mode of ignorance, you have it backwards. You think what's right is wrong, what's wrong is right. So if somebody sometimes gets it right, they could be primarily in the mode of passion. I, I'd be very surprised if Bush were primarily in the mode of goodness. That would be very surprising. I, I would highly doubt that. Does he probably have some of the mode of goodness? Yeah, probably. Most people. Most human beings do. They have some goodness sometimes at least a few glimmers here and there in their life. So a risk-taker in transcendence. What does a risk-taker in transcendence do? I could say, plays with swords on stage. <laughs> Goes to a different festival site every day, right? Doesn't know where they're going tomorrow. Goes to America at the age of 70. Goes to America at the age of 70. That's a very good example. <laughs> Right? So, you know, the cautious person, they're going to be doing the same service for Krishna every day. They're going to bring water from the Jamuna every day. And the risk-taking person, they're going to go into a different country every day, and they don't even know what country am I going to today. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So, this took rather longer than I anticipated, because we talked about all sorts of other things. Which, it, it's nice, you know, I should just have an open Q&A session instead of having a planned but then I get attached and I'm supposed to follow my trajectory because I figure it was advertised like that and if I just go with Q&A, some of you will be disappointed and say, you know, the risk-taking types will be happy that I went off on another trajectory <laughs> and the cautious people will be really mad at me. It's like, it said you were going to talk about this and that's what I came for. <laughs> so I hope you can see that neither being cautious nor being risk-taking is intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. That was my whole point of this exercise. Does that make sense? Another point of this exercise is that whatever personality type we have in this life, and by the way, we do not have the same personality type in each of our lives, just like we don't have the same gross body in each of our lives. Our subtle mind changes from one life to the next, and we try on different personalities. Like I try on different gross bodies. I wonder what it's like to be a frog. I wonder what it's like to be a man. I wonder what it's like to be Chinese. I wonder what it's like to be this. We want to taste different things, so we also taste, you know, I wonder what it would be like to be a really cautious person. And we find that even in this life, if we're not really satisfied, fully satisfied with our personality in this life, and I've heard so many people say, oh, I wish I could be more organized. Remember when we were with today, she was saying, oh, I wish I could be more organized. Why can't I be more organized? That's wanting to have a different personality type. Or, oh, I wish I could be more artistic and more creative. Oh, I wish I could do more risk-taking things. Oh, I wish I could be more, you know, social. Or, oh, I wish I could just focus on a task. So when we're saying things like that, what we're really saying is, I wish I had another kind of personality. And just like saying, you know, I wish I could fly, or some girl we saw on the street today with multicolored hair, who obviously wants to be a bird. You know, so if you're saying, I wish I had another kind of gross body, or I wish I had another kind of subtle body. That leads us to take life after life after life. And sometimes in spiritual life we think, oh, it would be so much easier for me to be a devotee if I had a different kind of personality type. If I was more like this, or I was more like that, or more like this, and more like that, then it would be easier for me to be Krishna conscious. So, first of all, that's not true. Whatever kind of personality we have, whatever kind of gross body we have, whatever kind of subtle body we have, use it in Krishna service. My, my humble request to everybody is please 
Don't waste your human energy wanting to be another kind of material personality or another kind of body because all that will do is get you what you want. And that means another body to try that out. But we can see that every kind of personality has its, its good and bad side. And the good side and the bad side are, are integral. So a very cautious person is, is somebody you can depend upon. They're going to be there every morning at 7.30. But if you say, okay, I want you to go to Albania and preach, they, they would really have a hard time doing that. So the very quality that allows them to be that you know, loyal, reliable team player is the very quality that doesn't allow them to just go on the spur of the moment. Right? If you say to someone like that, okay, five minutes, let's get ready, go out the door. What? Huh? You got to give me some notice. I mean, I can't just do things like that. One devotee would mention to me today, they said, oh yeah, you know, I know this devotee who's just never, ever, ever wants to criticize anybody or anything. But then when there's a reason to criticize, he won't do it. You know, if you ask him, well, how's the subji I cook? Could it use more salt? He doesn't want to say. Okay, you can't get an answer out of him. So you can say it's... Each of our personalities is good or... The same quality, the same quality is good or bad depending on what we're doing with it. So like, who do you want to be the temple accountant? A cautious person or a risk taker? Right? And who do you want to organize festivals in a Muslim country? A cautious person or a risk taker? Obviously, but you don't want a risk taker handling your money. So our, our material personality types, just like our physical body that we have. You know, each of our bodies is good for some things and not others. Each of us has a, a body that's capable of doing some things very well and not very capable of doing other things very well, isn't it? So it's the same with our particular personality. And as I say, the very trait that makes us very qualified for something, that very trait disqualifies us from something else. Are you, are you all following me? Okay, related, but not exactly the same as risk-taking and caution, is whether you're a big-picture person or a detail person. Do you notice details? Do you have the patience for details? Do you love working with the details? Or do you like seeing the big picture? Now, again, like we were just doing this book project I showed you yesterday, and we needed people to check every single file on every single page. So for that, we need a detail person. A big picture person, they just touch the page, they hear the first couple words, and they say, oh, it's okay. You know, we had some of those people checking things, and later we found mistakes. The mistake was on the third line. And I said, why did you have this mistake? Oh, I never listened to the third line. I only listened to the first line, and then I went on to the next page. I said, oh, my God. Right? So, you know, are you a detailed person? Are you a big picture person? And again, they have their, it's, it's the same way. Or are you, do you really like being with people, or do you really like getting jobs done? So again, you really like being with people, then you're suited for some kinds of work, and other kinds of work you're not suited for. And you really like getting a job done, you're suited for some kinds of work, and other kinds of work you're not suited for. So when we talk about personality, what's your personality? We, there's a list of things we could look at. 
Are you more fast-paced? Are you more slow-paced? Do you like being with people? Do you like getting a job done? Are you more cautious? Are you more risk-taking? Are you more detail-oriented? Are you more big-picture-oriented? You, do you organize everything mental, mentally, sequentially, or do you organize things in a more, what we call, lateral fashion? For example, people who do counseling are generally lateral people. They're relating more emotionally. And people who work with mathematics are working more logically. And each of them, again, has their benefits. Yes? I was just wondering, you know, we did the difficulties of the Christian experience and we're saying that the, the devotee has it, you know, in his mysticism. So, you know, all those qualities of a person, you know, we're supposed to develop them all. Are we saying that it's not that it's either or? Well, this is a thank you for that very nice one. And just like we went through how you could be a risk-taking person in ignorance, passion, goodness, or transcendence, you could be a cautious person in ignorance, passion, goodness, or transcendence. So if you're in transcendental Krishna consciousness, you will have all good qualities, but you know they're going to manifest differently according to your personality. For example, we often assume that cautious, reserved, task-oriented people are more humble than outgoing, people-oriented, fast-paced, risk-taking people. Because you're people-oriented, fast-paced, risk-taking people, they're going to be in front of a crowd of 100,000. And whereas your cautious, reserved, task-oriented people, they're going to be in the background scrubbing the pots. No one's even going to know that they were at the festival. And we tend to think that the person in the background scrubbing the pots, that that person's humble, and the person who's up in front of 100,000 people is not humble. Now, each of those persons can be equally humble or equally proud, but it will manifest differently. Just like the person who stays in this in Bhaktivedanta manner, who hasn't left the property more than three times in, in 40 years, and who's been doing the same service every single day for 40 years, there's a brahmachari there like that. He never talks to anybody. He doesn't talk to anybody. He just does his service. He doesn't even say hello. Because I, I visit there regularly. Generally, the residents there, when they see me, oh, Haribo. He never says Haribo to me. I, even sometimes I try to say Haribo to him, and I don't, I don't get much of a response. You know, he's very, very fixed on his service. And he's completely dependable with his service. And then you have, you know, somebody else who's organizing big preaching programs and big festivals and traveling to a different place every two days and, you know, okay, where am I going to tomorrow? And let me go to Albania. And or we just had these devotees who went to Albania and organized Harinam in Albania. Now, they can be equally Krishna conscious and equally showing all the good qualities of a devotee, but they're showing it very, very differently. They're manifesting those good qualities according to their personality. So it's not that everyone who becomes a high role. It's not that every devotee who becomes humble is going to be humble in exactly the same way. Or everyone who's compassionate is going to be compassionate exactly the same way. We're each going to develop all these words. It's not really develop. These good qualities are already there in us. We're going to manifest, rather, those good qualities differently according to who we are. Does that make sense?
which is one reason why I went through that little exercise. Yes? You were saying how, um, you know, if we have a certain sort of personality makeup and then we're thinking, oh, I wish it was like this, and I wish it was like that, that, that actually would be like a diversion, really, from Krishna consciousness. Absolutely. So there's an aspect where we have to accept who we are Absolutely. and accept our position. But then there's also the aspect that not only do we accept our own position, but we accept the position of other devotees. Correct. Because a person with a very passionate nature may say, you know, he may, may think, oh, that person's very slow, very cautious, you know, I must try and get him to sort of really yes. move and do something the way yes. I want it done. Yes. But actually, there's, but it's, it's an acceptance of ourselves. And in fact, the person who is doing that to the other person, it means that he hasn't actually accepted his own Correct. situation. Correct. Thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful answer. And a lot of the, the conflict and the difficulty that we have is because the ma- basic material tendency is we're never satisfied with what we have. That's why we take birth after birth after birth after birth after birth. Because what we have is intrinsically not satisfying. The, the material body that we have and the present material mind that we have is not satisfying because it's not us. It's not my real self. So I'm not really satisfied with it. I'm always trying to change it. And if I, if I basically like the kind of personality that I have, then I'm going to criticize others and think they should be like me. And if I'm really dissatisfied with the kind of personality type, then I'm going to think that I should be like them. But I mean, just uh, recently I was talking about this, and one devotee who hadn't been to my seminar was really insisting to me that if someone's advanced, they'll become cautious. It was quite interesting. She was saying, you know, risk-taking is all in the mode of passion. And if once you really become advanced in Krishna consciousness, you'll just become peaceful and calm and satisfied. So I could say, all right, I know what kind of personality she has. <laughs> it was very interesting. And you'll see the other way also. As you're saying, the person who's a risk taker will sometimes think, you know, hey, you're supposed to get out and go preach in the Muslim countries. What are you just doing here being a pujari? And, and this idea that Krishna consciousness means changing your material situation. This, I decided that this is one of illusion's main diversions. And this is explained very nicely in, by Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur. We are really going somewhat off topic. But this is explained very nicely by Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur in Madhurya Kanamani that one of the main symptoms of unsteady bhakti is what he calls indecision. And he talks about it in terms of should I be a, a married person or a renunciate? Should I live in the holy place or should I live someplace else? But basically this idea that my external material situation, and Prabhupada especially writes about this in letters, that my external material situation, which includes, by the way, my mind and body, is what has to be changed. That I have to have a different kind of body or a different kind of mind in order to become spiritual. And instead of putting our energy into thinking about Krishna, I put my energy into, well, I'd like to be a more organized person, or I'd like to be a more focused person, or I'd like to be a more festival party person, or, you know, whatever. And without realizing that by doing that, instead of going to Krishna, we're just going to try out another, okay, try out that. Try out that. Because we're, we're basically in a drama. Has everyone here been in a play at least once in their life? At least in school, right? Everybody been to play? No? Yeah? Maybe so? You don't answer? You're house sleeping? Uh-huh. Okay, good. Has everybody been? So what do you do in a play? 
you put on a costume, but you also accept the mentality of that character. At least you're supposed to. That's the idea. You're not supposed to, you know, if you're Mary Jane, you're not supposed to be Mary Jane on the stage. You're supposed to be Queen Elizabeth or something like that. Or, right? So you put on the costume of Queen Elizabeth, but you're also supposed to take on that mentality. So that's what we do from life to life to life. We take on different gross bodies, and we also take on various subtle bodies. Yes? I missed the first part of your comment, but if you make a distinction between materials and people, and if you are spirit, then that's what you're saying. We've been talking about personality from a materialist point of view. So do we... Absolutely. We certainly do, and that's where we're about to go. <laughs> Although we're going to go to Krishna's personality. But yes, we all have an eternal personality. And our eternal personality is uniquely ours. So there is some description, just like there is description of material personality types. And I have not described this in depth. I give a two or three hour seminar on material personality types. But that's not what this is. So I've given you a little taste. But there's all different systems for defining material personality types, like astrology. You can say, you're an Aries rising with your moon in Capricorn. That's a particular personality type. Or you can say, you're an outgoing, task-oriented person. Or there's different codes and symbols. Or you're a Kapavata you know, and that tells you what kind of material personality type you are. So there's also a science for spiritual personality types. And this is described by Rupa, primarily by Rupa Goswami. And Rupa Goswami describes this in a general way in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. He also describes it in Ujjwala Nilamani and many other books where he describes the spiritual personality types. Now, the spiritual personality types... This is interesting, because I wasn't going to talk about this. It's all right if I talk about this, because I wasn't going to talk about it. Okay. So the material personality types are really, how do I want to enjoy the material world? And we mentioned this either yesterday or the day before. What flavor do I want to enjoy? For example, birds can enjoy certain sorts of pleasures that humans can't enjoy. They can have bodies that are colorful. Right? Our body is generally primarily one color. But their body has many, many, many different kinds of color. They can enjoy flying. So that's a certain taste that I'm not experiencing in a human body. Right? A tiger enjoys a certain taste, a certain taste of food, a certain taste, a certain kind of mating, a certain kind of environment, a certain sense of self that a tiger has or that a bird has or the different species of birds. These are all different flavors of enjoyment. And these different flavors give us, like the, um, the famous actress Julia Roberts, I was uh, reading where she was, she's evidently in a movie where she goes to India, and in an interview she's saying that she's a Hindu. And she said, you know, in this life I've been so much in the front, my next life I want to be something quiet and supportive in the background. So she's saying, my next life I'd like to enjoy a different taste. I'm tired of being in the front. I want a next life I'd like to be in the back. So that's actually what, what we do. 
Now, spiritually, our personality is not how we want to taste material enjoyment, but how we want to taste loving service to Krishna. So, in both cases, personality is about what taste we like. Now, materially, we keep trying different tastes because none of them really satisfy us. I taste pistachio ice cream, and it's like, okay, yeah, maybe I'd like butter pecan. Right? Maybe I'd like a pizza. Maybe I'd like this. And we, we go from one taste to another, and we're never really satisfied. And one of the reasons for that is that the different material tastes are not actually really different. They're just different ways the modes of material nature are combining. All you're dealing with is the modes of material nature. And the, the so-called different tastes are, to some extent, illusory. You're really just eating the same thing over and over and over and over and over again with slightly different, slightly different appearances. You're really just eating, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending over and over and over. It's like, you know, if you have the same soup and it's in different cups, but it's, it's, the flavor really isn't that different. Whereas spiritually our personality is, how do I want to serve Krishna? And there there's infinite variety of genuine differences. So we can say that there's five main ways and seven secondary ways in which you might like to serve Krishna. So you might like to serve Krishna as a friend, you might want to be Krishna's servant, you might want to have a superior position to Krishna where you think he's your child or he's your student. Or you might want to have Krishna as your husband, you might want to have Krishna as your lover. Or you might want to have Krishna as somebody that makes you laugh. Or you might want to have Krishna as somebody you fight with. Or you might want to have Krishna as somebody that makes you feel scary, excited. Those are the secondary vessels. And then... Each of those has many, 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 many subcategories. Just like we talked about two main categories, the cautious person and the risk-taker. Okay, but you know ten risk-taking people, and they're not all exactly the same. There's so many subcategories that you can start making. So Rupa Goswami will explain, for example, among those who want to be Krishna's friend, there are those who are Krishna's friend, but they're very reverential. Those who are Krishna's friend, but they're more intimate. Krishna's friends who feel that they're younger than him, Krishna's friends who feel they're the same age, Krishna's friends who feel they're a little older, Krishna's friends who really like to joke with him, Krishna's friends who really like to... Rap. And, and, and you've got more and more subcategories. And the same with, with Krishna's queens and beloveds. You know, some of them are called right-wing or left-wing, so some of them are very submissive. Oh, my dear Krishna, what would you like me to do? And some of them are, hey, Krishna, what are you doing? How come you haven't been here? You know, So some of them argue with him. And then there are different categories of those. And Rupa Goswami goes down to about five subcategories. But there's actually as many subcategories as there are individual souls. So each of us is in some major category, then we're in a subcategory, then a sub, 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 sub. And finally we come to our own individual category where the only other person in there is me. And it's exactly how I want to reciprocate with Krishna. What particular flavor of love is, are Krishna and I exchanging with one another? So my material body and mind is what flavor of exploitation of the world do I want to have? How do I want to taste exploiting the world? And spiritually, my personality is how do I want to exchange love with Krishna? And because that's infinitely satisfying, that's not constantly changing. I'm not saying, well, today I want to serve Krishna like this. Not tomorrow. Now I want to try this and that. Because it's, it's, it's authentic. 
whereas the other is not authentic. So we have our eternal personality, and right now we're trying on different disguises. And why do we want to do that? There's no good reason. It's like why do people asking why do people smoke? You can't give a logical answer for that. I can't give you a logically satisfying answer why do people smoke. It doesn't do them the slightest bit of good. So why, even though Krishna is in our heart, do we want to enjoy material taste? Oh, foolishness. Curiosity. Yes. Um, how is uh, our spiritual personality and how we, we are spiritual Krishna in the spiritual world related to how we are serving Krishna and how we want to serve Krishna in our Probably not. Not at all. And maybe by coincidence. It may be if you eternally have a male body, you might also have a male body in this life. Could be. But might, maybe not. And you might be a very feisty person in your original spiritual manifestation. You might be very feisty in this life also. But you might not. Yes, please. <coughs> On the spiritual personality, I'm wondering how diminished it is in the sense that we understand the spiritual world is in the world, in the space world, and everything is interchangeable. Is it that our eternal spiritual personality has limitations, so that, you know, is it not that one day we might not just go to Krishna, and the next day we might not have to go to Well, there are, there are, there is some facility, just like there's uh, living entities who have one relationship with Lord Chaitanya, another relationship with Krishna. Or they have one relationship with Ramachandra, another relationship with Krishna. Or they may have one with Ramachandra, one with Krishna, and one with Lord Chaitanya. Well, again, you can have more than one relationship with different incarnations of Krishna. So you might be a servant, of, you might have a servant relationship with one incarnation and a conjugal relationship with another incarnation. But it's, I think that that question comes up, my guess is that that question comes up, and it comes up a lot, because the material personality that we take is never satisfying to us. And our tendency is that we want to change it. That's why we keep taking life after life after life. It's kind of like the things we buy. You know, you buy a car, and generally, soon after you buy a car, you think about what's the next car you're going to buy. I mean, it's rare that you buy a car and you say, yeah, I'm just going to keep buying the same car. Of course, if you try to do that, then they'll stop making it. <laughs> when you, you know, when you finally find something you like, right? can't stand that. You're finally like, ah, the perfect socks, you know, and then all of a sudden they don't, they don't make them anymore. And you think maybe I should stock up on a hundred pairs or something. But generally in this world, whatever situation we think we want it, we say, yeah, I want that. That's what I want. And then you get it and you're like, why well, isn't exactly what I had in mind? So I, I believe that we have a lot of fear that we think that first of all our eternal identity is something that's going to be imposed upon us where Krishna's going to say you are a this and we just have to say okay and we also think that our eternal identity is not going to fully satisfy us so I know this doesn't make perfect sense in terms of chronology because eternal means it has no beginning but our eternal identity is our eternal identity because it's what we want 
It's our choice. It's not something that's imposed upon us. Of course, when we say choice, you know, materially speaking, choice means right now I'm not choosing it, then there's a point in time at which I choose it. So if it's always there, how could I choose it? It, it doesn't, that doesn't really kind of compute. But no, the spiritual personality is not limited like the material personality, and it's fully satisfying. I was just hearing that again, that every, everyone in their, in their constitutional position, it's kind, of, it's kind of even in this world, when you're doing something that fits. You know, whatever kind of body and personality we have in this world, when you're doing something that fits, it's so satisfying. And hasn't, haven't we all done that? We've done some kind, we've been in the situation, done some kind of work, even if it was just for 10 minutes, where it just fit. It was, it was just, it was like we were eating our food. You know, like cows, they're supposed to eat grass. Modern cows often don't eat grass, they eat all kinds of rubbish. But if a cow's eating grass, they're going to be healthy. I, I was reading how that when they feed cows corn, they get all kinds of diseases. And if they just eat grass for five days, they'll be healthy. Diseases will go. So we have our own psychological food also. And when we're doing it, we just feel, yes, I'm in my right place. I'm doing something that's authentically me. So if we feel that materially with our false personality, you know, we find something that authentically fits our false personality, and it's satisfying. Just imagine you find something that actually fits me. How satisfying that is. I mean, it's, you can't even compare that. But I would like to make the point that the her personality of the jiva is never unlimited like the personality of Krishna. That if we're something, we're not something else. Which is, I think, one reason why people really balk at the idea of God having a personality. Because although we all have some caution and some risk-taking, as I said, if you were extreme of one or the other, you wouldn't live very long. Still, we're primarily one or the other. And if I'm primarily a risk-taker, I'm not going to be very good at things that require a lot of caution. And if I'm primarily cautious, I'm not going to be very good at things that require a lot of risk-taking. So whatever I, if I'm good at something, that implies that I'm not good at something that requires the opposite trait. In fact, that's kind of what we mean by personality. It's interesting, those who do personality studies say if someone doesn't have any prominent trait at all, they're, they really don't have very happy lives. You know, there, there's a few people who you really can't really say what they are. They're, they're kind of blobby. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a very unsatisfying, there's not very many people like that, by the way. And that's a very unsatisfying life. But as soon as you're something, then that something means that you're not something else. Am I making sense to everybody? Okay. And we're talking about wanting to change ourselves or changing others. When I want to change myself, I tend to look at what I'm not good at instead of what I'm good at. If I want to change other people, I do the same thing. So now Krishna can't have anything that he's not good at. Right? He's got to be good at everything. That's our idea of God. How could he be the supreme? How could he be the greatest if he wasn't good at everything? So then how could he have a personality? Is he just kind of globby? <laughs> so therefore, Krishna's personality is a little inconceivable because it must be contradictory. 
Krishna must have contradictory personality traits. Krishna's got to be the ultimate risk taker and the ultimate cautious person at the same time. Without having the downside of either. Now we can't do that. And from what, from what you read about the eternal living beings personality types, they're not like that either. You know, you, you, you read this particular person, they're submissive. This particular person, they're feisty. Again, it doesn't mean they're always feisty. They're always feisty. Just like, as I said, no risk taker in this world is always a risk taker. But that predominant type is there among the liberated souls. Whereas Krishna is very different. So we're going to look now at Krishna's personality types as explained by Rupa Goswami. And again, you'll notice that these four descriptions are contradictory. And normally we couldn't conceive of these existing within the same person. So the first one we're going to look at is Dhirodhata. And I think we have some papers here. So Rupa Goswami describes Dhirodhata as a person who's grave, gentle, forgiving, merciful, determined, humble, highly qualified, chivalrous, and physically attractive. This Dhirodhata is epitomized by the noble king. By the noble king. We could say that this is a particular quality of, in this world, somebody who's very much in the mode of passion, almost goodness. A very righteous, kind, chivalrous, honorable person. And this is particularly shown in Krishna's incarnation as Lord Ramachandra, the perfect king, always noble, always wedded to doing the right thing, always wanting to help others. And this particular attribute of Krishna is especially evident in the pastime of his lifting Govardhan Hill. So in this story, in Krishna's village of Vrindavan, everyone was doing a sacrifice for the rain god. And Krishna's not really very keen about having people do sacrifices for all different gods. So although in the Vedas, the description is given of all different gods, and even sometimes descriptions to worship these gods for different things, that's not really the preference. And just like you find you know, in the Bible, it says that God doesn't want you worshiping other gods. And by the way, if it says he doesn't want you worshiping other gods, that must mean there are other gods. He couldn't say, please don't worship other gods, but actually they don't exist. You know? <laughs> so the, the people often get confused and think that because in the Vedic scriptures these gods are given names and given descriptions, that therefore we believe that they're all equal. Uh, but they're all subordinate to Krishna. They're really, those, those other gods are with one exception, are, are living beings like us. And we, in fact, may have been, probably were, and may be in the future, having this position of these different gods. So somebody in this room may have been the god of rain or the god of the sun or the god of the moon. In fact, most likely, some of us in this room at some previous birth had such positions, and we might have some positions like that in the future. So Krishna said, okay, don't worship this rain god. And his father said, well, you know, we have to. We're agriculturalists. We have to have rain. And Krishna said, you know, it rains on the ocean. They're not worshiping the rain god. And really, you're going to get rain if you're a good person. You, know, you don't need any gods to give you rain. Just be a good person. 
So I said, well, okay. I said, but you know, we have all this stuff now for the sacrifice. Let's just do it anyway. Krishna says, look, we're pasturing all of our cows on the hill. Why don't we just worship the local hill? I said, in fact, why don't you take all the things prepared to worship the rain god and just worship Govardhan Hill? And his father said, okay, let's do that. So they did that, and as they were worshiping this hill, the hill actually took the form of Krishna. So Krishna showed that he himself was this hill, that he had become a great hill to give pleasure to his devotees, to provide them with food and with jewels and with shelter in the form of a hill. So, but then the rain god Indra wasn't very happy with the situation, and he decided that he was going to punish everyone, and he caused a huge flood, at which point everybody approached Krishna and said, help, which was interesting because he appeared to be only seven years old. So generally, if there's a natural catastrophe, you don't go to the seven-year-old kid in the village. But everybody went to Krishna, please help. And Krishna, it was very interesting how Krishna dealt with it. Because first of all, Krishna could have dealt with Indra, the rain god, so that there wasn't a flood at all. He could have prevented there being a flood, easily. And he could have just stopped the flood with some sort of mystic power. And he didn't do any of those things. Uh, but rather, just like when it's raining, we get an umbrella. Right when I came here. Right, you said it rains periodically and people always carry umbrellas. I was telling you the story when I was in India during the rainy season. and Devotees were driving me to the airport and they said, isn't the rainy season in America? I said, well, we don't really have a monsoon in America. <laughs> and they said, well, gee, it was this long pause, you know. And I said, well, how do you get any rain? <laughs> I said, well, it rains a lot, you know. Plenty of another long, long pause. And they said, well, how do you know when to bring an umbrella? <laughs> <laughs> So Krishna decided that he was going to deal with the flood with an umbrella. And because he had to have an umbrella for the whole village, you know, and there wasn't such a big umbrella just locally available. You know how, I don't know what it's like here, but in New York, whenever it rains, all of a sudden, there's umbrella salesmen out on the streets. They just sort of, you know. <laughs> you know, they weren't there a minute ago. And there they are. So, but there's no umbrella salesman that has an umbrella big enough to cover all of Dublin. So what was he going to do? So he picked up this hill of Govardhan. And he used that like a huge umbrella over the whole village. So that's an example of Krishna as Dhirodhata. He does something wonderful to save everyone, wonderful to be a hero, right? and, and full of all noble qualities. So one thing that, that Krishna really likes doing is being a hero. Really, really likes being a hero. And you'll notice that sometimes, many times, Krishna's devotees get into all kinds of problems like we were saying, that you, the results of something you can't judge as to whether or not it works out of the material sphere. And one of the reasons Krishna's devotees get into all kinds of problems is so Krishna can play the hero and save them because it's so much fun. And so the devotees are happy to uh, put them, have themselves be in a situation where Krishna can be the hero and save them. Okay, now the next aspect of Krishna's personality is called Diralalita. Dira Lalita is a very different quality, and this quality is only seen in Krishna. It's not seen in any of his other incarnations. Dira Lalita is someone who's funny, always youthful, expert in joking, free from all anxieties, and very domesticated, very attached to his lady friends. So uh, the only example of this is Cupid. Of course, we don't know much about Cupid in the West, I don't think. Uh, but 
really dear love. So dear Dante is the noble, righteous king who always follows all of the rules of society and is the hero. Dear Lalita is the party boy. Dear Lalita has, you know, a beautiful girl and he's always joking and he's always eating nice food and he's just having a good time. Now that's the mood of Dear Lalita. By the way, you'll notice with all these four descriptions of Krishna's personality that materially speaking, heroes in society tend to be one of these four types. If you think of both the real heroes in society and the fictional heroes, they tend to fall into one of these categories. So some examples of Krishna being dear Lalita is um, when Krishna was joking with his wife Rukmini. When Rukmini was fanning him and Krishna says, well, you know, I know we've been married a long time, but I really don't think you should have married me. I mean, there were so many qualified men who wanted to marry you. And really, I'm not very qualified. I mean, there should be a marriage between equals. But, you know, you're a princess, and I was brought up in a cowherding village, and you were so wealthy, and I don't really own anything. And, you know, the kings of the world don't really like me. It's just like the saints and the ascetics and the penniless people who like me. And I'm not much of a hero. I mean, I built this fortress in the middle of the sea. And so he was trying to joke with her like that. Of course, she didn't appreciate it at first. She just like thought, is telling me to get a divorce. I'm marrying someone else is going to leave me. She fainted. And then he picked her up and he said, my dear Rukmini, he said, I, I wanted you to joke with me. Uh, but he was, so, he was so pleased that she fainted out of love, although he wanted her to joke with him. Uh, and for his wife, Satyabhama, when he gave given a parijatafli to treat Harijata flower to Rukmini, Satyabhama then also wanted one. She said, hey, you know you gave Rukmini flower, I don't want to. So he took her up to the planet of Indra and got her a whole tree. So that's very much dear Lalita. When he took the clothes of the gopis when they were bathing, that's also very much dear Lalita. So then Krishna has the personality type of Dira Prasanta. So Santa means peaceful. And the attributes of dear Prasanta are peaceful, forbearing, considerate, and obliging. So we think of this as like um, a, a real gentleman. The, the quintessential gentleman. So Mara's Yudhisthira is very much this dear Prasanta person. Always forgiving. King Yudhisthira was so forgiving that even though his wife was insulted in his presence, he was ready to forgive. He said, no, don't take any action. So it's, it's almost a, a servant position. You know, it's just somebody who's, who's always serving and helping others. Very, very gentle and calm. And Krishna showed this at the sacrifice of Maharaj Yudhisthira when he washed the feet of all the guests, even though he's God. And when he was driving Arjuna's chariot, Krishna was in this mood of dira prasanta. Uh, we were talking about the story of Sudama. Remember when Sudama came with the rice? When Krishna treated Sudama with respect, when he seated Sudama on his bed and he was washing his feet and asking, Oh, my dear friend, how are you doing? So this is this dear Prasanta quality. Um, when after the killing of Jarasandhar, when Krishna, instead of taking over the kingdom, he installed Jarasandhar's son as the king. He didn't, he didn't have any desire to conquer the kingdom. This is as dear Prasanta. 
then the last aspect of Krishna's personality is Diradatta. Now Diradatta is the bad boy. So Diradatta is the hero, Diralalita is the party boy, Diraprasanta is the gentleman, and Diradatta is the bad boy. So sometimes you see this, right, in, in, again, in modern fiction, where, you know, the hero is almost a criminal. Right? Almost a criminal. Yeah, something like that. Or I think, um, I don't know, I was never really into Batman. I remember I used to... <laughs> I don't know, I could never see why anybody liked Batman. But I did used to like James Bond. So he's an example of Dero Dada. He's, he's bad. You know, he's, al- he's almost a bad guy. He's almost a bad guy. And, and there's a, a lot of, of heroes like that, you know, like the... They drag the guy out of jail to save the country or whatever, you know, and rides on a motorcycle and is a real tough guy, but he shoots all the bad guys. That's his Diradatta personality. You, you can again see how each of these four types are people that we consider very attractive. And Diradatta is envious and proud and easily angered and restless and complacent. And you might say, well, how can God have these kind of and the saying that Krishna only acts like this to protect his devotees. So, you know, if a bad guy's coming, you might want a Dirodhata to take care of you. Right? You might want someone who's going to say, Hey, what are you doing messing with my devotee? <laughs> so that's Krishna's Dirodhata. And the example of this as a personality is Bhima. So Bhima is very much a Dirodhata kind. You know, when his wife asks him for a lotus flower, he just goes and takes it. He ends up in a big battle. And uh, Krishna's like this when the demons are challenging him to fight. Like when Pondraka comes and says, What do you mean you're God? I'm God. Give me your name, he says to Krishna. Give me your name, give me your weapons, and take shelter of me. And Krishna said, Well, I don't know if I'm going to give you my name. And I think when you die on the battlefield... Uh, then the birds will take shelter of your body. <laughs> and yeah, I'll give you my weapons. No problem. I'll cut off your head with them. So that's uh, <laughs> Krishna as Dirodhata. Let me read what he said. He says, you are a foolish rascal. I directly call you a rascal, and I refuse to follow your instructions. I shall never give up the symbols of Vasudeva, especially my disc. I shall use this disc to kill not only you, but all your followers also. O foolish king, you will then have to conceal your face in disgrace, and when your head is severed from your body by my disc, it will be surrounded by meeting birds like vultures, hawks, and eagles. At that time, instead of becoming my shelter, as you have demanded, you will be subject to the mercy of these low-born birds. At that time, your body will be thrown to the dogs who will eat it with great pleasure. So that's... So it's nice to have a tough guy around sometimes, isn't it? Right? You don't... You don't want your hero always to be just meek and humble. Forgiveness. So these are the four aspects of Krishna's personality. He's Dhirodhata as the righteous hero. He's Dhiralalita as the fun party boy. He's Dhiraprasanta as the very mild and kind and loving gentleman. Right? I mean, what one wants a man who's all tough? Or even all tough and all fun? You want someone who's really also kind considerate and caring, right? And then he's also the bad guy when necessary. Just bad. 
even and even dispense with that, you know, righteous, honorable mood. Uh, sometimes in dealing with the bad kind. So this is Krishna's personality, and he's all of those perfectly, and he's all of those without the negative side. You know, for us, you, we can't really be Dhirodhata and Dhiroprasanta. Maybe we can be Dhirodhata and Dhiroprasanta at different times. But we're going to be primarily one or the other. Maharaj Yudhisthira is very much Dhiroprasanta. And Bhima was very much Dhirodhata. But Krishna is both. And he's both perfectly. With, without any, any negative side, without any weakness. So this is the idea that he's a person. He has personality which means he has favorites and he wears all different colors, but he really likes yellow. He can play every instrument, but he particularly likes his flute. He has many pet animals, but he especially likes cows. So he has his, his, his likes and dislikes. He has his favorites. And he has his personality, and yet they're manifested in these four areas. Right? So we talked about what is personality in general, we talked about our material personality, our spiritual personality, and we talked about Krishna's personality. So this concludes our three-part series on Krishna's qualities. Of course, Krishna has unlimited qualities, so we could have an unlimited series. So I hope you all enjoyed this, and that this will give you some substance for meditating on Krishna, so we can have... Uh, oh, you wanted to ask me about the book burning. Do you still want to ask me about that? Me? Yeah. It sounds like you could do it with Dhiradatta. <laughs> <laughs> That's on a completely different topic, but the the um, the explanation is given in the eleventh canto, and Prabhupada talks about it frequently. It's also in the third canto that religious people can be uh, beginning, middle, or advanced. Or in the third canto, it explains that you can be religious in the mode of ignorance, religious in the mode of passion, religious in the mode of goodness, or religious transcendent. People who are religious in the mode of ignorance, uh, or people who are real, real, real beginners on the spiritual path, they have all respect for God, and then they don't know how to treat anybody. And they generally think God is only in my temple. Yes. So they think God is only in a temple. He's not everywhere. And not only only in temple, he's only the really beginner, the real mode of ignorance. God is only in my temple. You know, he's only in the Shuni Muslim temple. He's not in the Shiite Muslim temple. He's only in the Lutheran before 1600 church. He's not in the Lutheran after 1600 church. I, mean, I remember my mother-in-law came to visit us once, and after she booked the ticket, she realized she was going to be there for Easter. And I said, Mom, you know, would you like me to take you to church? She said, yes. And I know she's Lutheran. So when I looked up, I found out, I forget what the date is, but there was a Lutheran church before this date and a Lutheran church after this date. You know, and I had to ask her, which one do you prefer? Right? So people think like that. God's, in, God's only in the temple of my particular religion and my particular part of my particular religion. And really, you know, you get going to get to the bottom level, they not only think that way, they kill everybody else. So, you know, the very, they're, they're really, they're just in the very first nursery school of spiritual life. They understand that there's a God. 
but they think that not only is God only in my temple, but all those other people, they're really worshiping the devil. And so let me kill them because, you know, we should just kill all the devil worshipers. Then it would be a better world, right? Or let me kill their books or let me kill their religion. So that's, that's a very, 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 very low level of spirituality. And Lord Kapiladev says that if you're functioning at that level, that instead of offering your, your grains into a, the fire of sacrifice, you're offering your grains into ashes. Your, your spirituality doesn't do you any good. And you, you must, to, you've got to come, if you want to have any level of spirituality, you've got to know how to treat other living entities, which is one reason why we preach vegetarianism. We say you can't be spiritual and, and eat animals. But, you know, it's not that you're vegetarian and you mistreat the humans. I'm going to be nice to the cows and then I'm going to be mean to the other people. Well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I remember once I was at one of our festivals and I was saying this one woman. So Jesus said, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the next thing, what's the next commandment? She said, to love your neighbors yourself. I said, yes. I said, who's your neighbor? Is that just the other people or the other Catholics or you know, the other Irish or even the other humans? So it should be everyone. So somebody who has some idea of religion, but they don't know how to treat other living entities, their religion is not really, it, it's not really developed. It's not really prospered. All right, so that was totally off topic. But you did ask me that, and I did tell you I'd answer it. Because Well, that we were talking about that goodness, passion, ignorance, and transcendence. Oh, oh who would do that? Oh, that's obviously a high risk taker. Yeah. Obviously a high risk taker. And, and my response was to, to risk. Oh, yeah, to obviously. But that, that, I'd say that's risk taking in the mode of ignorance. Yeah. I'd say burning the scriptures of other faiths is risk and doing it very publicly and making it's not like he just went into his backyard and did it you know he wants he's doing it to make a big show and get all kinds of publicity and, get, and basically to cause trouble the mode of ignorance you do things that are harmful to others that are insulting others you know to possibly spark an international incident Okay, so, and then there'll be something in response to that, and then there'll be something in response to that. Like Gandhi said, an eye for an eye making the whole world blind. So, you know, you just, you just could keep on going with this. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Now I hurt you, now you're going to hurt me. Now I hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. And it goes on. And it doesn't start with one life either. You know, then you die thinking... You know, the next life you may be married to the person. It's, it's probably not quite on the topic, but it's, it's amazing how clear in, in some religions someone can say, I love God, and whoever's not part of my religion, they're going to go to hell forever. Nice yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yet they, yet they proclaim to love God, but someone who's not in that is going to go to hell. I mean, I wonder, eternity. why would you want to love such a God? <laughs> I, I don't know if you could really call that love. I don't really know if you could call that love. I mean, just like there were people devoted to Hitler. So 
I guess, you know, if, if you have this idea that God is, is cruel and whimsical, you have one life and you have one chance to get it together, and if you don't get it together in this life, then you suffer in a lake of fire forever. I, I, I wouldn't want to hang out with such a person eternally, would you? <laughs> doesn't sound like a very nice person. You wouldn't want to hang out with someone who believes that, either. No. <laughs> well, I really wouldn't. I, I don't find that attractive. I mean, I wouldn't find that attractive in an ordinary person. If you said to me, listen, I give my children five minutes to behave. They have five minutes. And if they don't behave in five minutes, then, you know, I put them in the microwave. I really wouldn't want to be your friend. Yes. Which is? Did we go up to the fifth commandment? Oh, with that? Says, thou, shalt thou shalt not kill. No, we didn't. With that, with that lady at the festival? Yeah. Oh, no, we didn't get that far. We were just trying to talk about who is your neighbor. <laughs> yes? Um, maybe it's not a relevant question of my level of advancement, but still curious curiosity is there. On this level of Tawfiq, uh, out of his mind, Oh, what a nice question. Um, before answering that, I'd like to say that Krishna is an individual and we're individuals. And therefore, although you can give a general answer to that question, there's not an absolute answer for that question. But it's not mechanical. Just like I showed you and I showed most people here yesterday, my program to teach reading. So I've taught hundreds of kids how to read. And if you say, at, there's a certain point at which a child, what, what I used to call clicks, there's a certain point at which they're not struggling anymore. They're actually reading. Now, when does that happen? The answer is it happens at a different point for each child. And it's, you never quite know when it's going to happen. Or another way to answer that question is, when does a person go through puberty? Depends. So there's a range. But it's a range. And also, the symptoms of maturity don't appear in each individual in exactly the same way. So one person may have some symptoms of maturity in a different order than another person has them. Or if you're going to talk about, you know, turning from a child to an adult, so you mature physically, you mature socially, emotionally, intellectually, sexually, um, probably a few ways I haven't thought of. And those don't, you can't, they don't all correspond. So you may mature intellectually before you mature physically, or you may mature socially before you mature sexually. And they, you can, you can give a general, you know, a doctor can, a doctor can give you a chart and say, these are the averages, and these are the kind of... And when, and when a person matures physically like this, they'll probably also mature intellectually like this. But it's not exactly like that. You, you can't take 10 people at the age of 15 who are all equal in their physical maturation and say that they're all going to have the same intellectual maturation. 
They won't. And you'll even see, if you look at your own self or you look at the other members of, of the Hare Krishna movement, you'll see that some people are very, very advanced in their dedication to, uh, say, worshiping the deity, but they may not be so advanced in how they run a prasadam. Or they may be very respectful to prasadam and not so uh, attuned to deity worship. Or they may be very, very realized in terms of how they're reading the scriptures and not so realized in terms of preaching. And we, we practically see that people can be very realized in one area and not so realized in another. And we might think, well, if they're realized in this area, how can they not be realized in this area? And we may want to adjust this down to this or this up to this, but that's not the truth. The truth is that a person can be more advanced in some areas than another in terms of their progressing. And so I really caution you, don't just think in terms of boxes. And, and, and stages in a lockstep fashion because that's not how it works. It's just not how it works. Krishna is a person and we're people and Krishna can reciprocate us in any way, in, within us in any way how he likes and when he likes. And I would suggest that if Krishna reciprocates with you that, uh, and I've seen devotees do this, I mean I'm speaking from experience, that devotees will be chanting and serving and Krishna will start to reveal to them their identity and they tell Krishna to go away. And they say, oh, I'm not ready for this. I'm not advanced enough for this. I've, I've met so many devotees who've had this kind of experience and said, you know, all of a sudden I started feeling these things and I oh, well, I'm not supposed to feel that way. I'm not advanced enough. And I think of it like, okay, I'm saying Krishna, 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 hi Krishna, hi Krishna, hi Krishna. And finally Krishna comes and says, here I am. And you say, go away, Krishna, I'm only a beginner. <laughs> so I'd say that at, at whatever point Krishna reveals, the, the general way in which things happen um, is that as one becomes free of the modes of passion ignorance, as one is approaching nishta, and as one is chanting at least on the what's called namabhas platform or the platform of shadow, that's usually the earliest at which one will have some glimpse of one's eternal spiritual identity. It may not happen until later. But generally, that would be the earliest. Uh, it may not happen even until bhava. Uh, generally, by the time someone's at least at a shakti, they have a general idea. And it starts out as something vague. As described in the Brahma Samhita, it says that Lord Brahma understood he was the maidservant of Krishna, but he didn't know the details. And again, if you think about our physical maturation, how we became in this life, you know, there's no children here, you know, how we became adults, and, or how you wake up in the morning, we use both examples. So how you become an adult, you know, there's a time when you're not quite sure. You remember that, when you weren't quite sure if you were a kid or if you were an adult? I mean, I remember that. I remember getting out my toys and trying to play with them, and there just wasn't any flavor in it anymore. There's at least three times I took out my toys and I tried to play and I, I just couldn't play anymore. <laughs> it just wasn't there. And, and I didn't quite know what was happening. You know, and all of a sudden I had desires to fix my hair in the morning. And I didn't know why. I didn't, if, if someone said, you're doing this to be attractive to men, I would say, no, I'm not. I, I didn't understand what was happening. So there's a period of time when you're kind of, you're not really a child and you're not really an adult. You don't know who you are. You don't know what you are. Or when you wake up in the morning. 
right? When you wake up, there's a period where, there's a time when you're definitely asleep, and there's a time when you're definitely awake, and then there's a sort of time when you're not really sure what you are. So spiritual awakening is also like that. It's generally, generally very gradual. So in the beginning, it's, it's a little hint. And, uh, oh, so in the beginning, it's a feeling. It's just a feeling. It's a vague impression. Oh, Krishna's my friend. Oh, Krishna's my child. Oh, Krishna's my lover. And it's, it's, a, it's a vague thing, a very strong thing, but it's a vague thing. And then one is working, that's generally around Nishtha, and then one is working to increase one's attachment to Krishna and to increase one's desire for perfection. And at that point, one's sadhana changes. Instead of focusing so much on wanting to get free of Rinartis, one is focusing more on getting more and more attached to Krishna. One is focusing much more on Krishna's name and Krishna's form and Krishna's quality and Krishna's pastimes. And one starts making much more of a deliberate effort to meditate on Krishna's form and name and qualities and pastimes. Until that point, it's more a general hearing. This is, by the way, described in the Nectar of Devotion, the purport to text 8, um, as well as in a number of other places. But there you'll find the, the basic stages are delineated, which is taken from a purport, Prabhupada's purport is taken from a purport of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, who also explains the same thing in his <coughs> purport to Bhakti Unotekar's purport on Shikshastaka, I believe, text 7, although it might be text 8. So then one starts... It's also explained in Bhakti Natakura's Bhajana Rahasya, a number of other places. So then one starts deliberately meditating on Krishna's pastimes. Until that point, again, it's generally you're just hearing Krishna book, you're hearing different things, you're trying to think about them. But then once that your spiritual identity, once you get this vague, clear, but vague, does that make sense? Just like when you're, when you're waking up, it's, you're, you're vaguely waking up, but you're, but you're waking up. Or the example Haridas Thakur gives, the sun rising. When the sun rises, before the sun's come up over the horizon, you know the sun's rising. But things are vague. You can't see any colors, right? You all remember science class? The cones, let's talk about science, see? The cones and the rods in your eyes, and your rods can see better in dim light, but only your cones can see color, which is why when the sun's rising, you can't see color. Notice that next time when the sun's setting. Sunset, sunrise, everything is shades of gray. You know the sun's risen, but everything's shades of gray. All you can make out is silhouettes, outlines of things. You can't make out details. So in the beginning it's like that. Oh, Krishna's like this, but it's vague. So at that point your meditation changes and you start really meditating on Krishna's pastimes. But at first your meditation is unsystematic. You may sometimes think about this pastime or sometimes think about this pastime. Your concentration is easily broken. Your greed is very uh, frail and delicate. You just have the beginnings of a of, of, of real desire for Krishna. Your faith is strong. Your faith is strong. At that point, you just know. <laughs> Krishna is God and he's my this. <laughs> you know, I, This is my relation. And you know that. And it doesn't matter what anybody says or what. You just, that's what it is. You're no longer convinced of that by the scriptures. You're no longer convinced of that by logic. You're convinced of that through practical, direct experience that came through revelation. 
But your greed is very failed. You're, it's more like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, now what do I do? How do I progress? What is this all about? It's not the strong desire. So then you're focusing by meditation. As you get a, a strong taste or ruchi, an attachment, a shakti, your meditation becomes more concentrated. So gradually as you meditate on one of Krishna's pastimes, it starts flowing into the next pastime. And you start, oh yeah, after Krishna did this, then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And you start thinking of Krishna's pastimes in, in, in more of a flow. But it's still interrupted and it, it's, it's not solid. Then after a while it just becomes constant. That always, But this is still on the platform of the mind. Now at this point, because the devotee already has some idea of their um, relationship with Krishna, although it's vague, and it's still just silhouetted, and it's still on the platform of the mind, although it has to start from revelation. It can't start from the mind. It can't be like, oh, I think I'd like to be... No, that, that's useless. Actually, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's, it has to start from revelation. But one does, and Jiva Goswami describes this in his Bhakti Sandarbha also, that one starts meditating on serving Krishna uh, in, 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 in the mind. Like Prabhupada talks about, and this can be done even by the beginner, Prabhupada talks about the Brahmin who meditated on serving the deity. So he meditated on cooking for the deity and dressing the deity. So even the beginner who has no idea of what their spiritual identity is can start that kind of meditation. And I would personally highly recommend that you do so. It's something that Prabhupada talks about quite a bit. He talks about doing that during Japa, for example. He talked about that in Geneva as something to do during Japa. But at the higher stages, one is meditating not just on that I'm dressing the deity and I'm cooking for the deity, but one is meditating, I'm serving Krishna in the role of my eternal personality. Now, even though your personality at that time is vague, you, don't, you just have a, a silhouette idea. So you don't think that as you're meditating on that, that that is your eternal body, and you're not really developing rasa at that time. All you're doing is you're increasing and increasing and increasing your attachment to Krishna and you're increasing and increasing and increasing your greed and your desire for perfection. At a certain point, that meditation on serving Krishna, not just observing, Burjama who was speaking about this recently in Vrindavan, we're not just observing as Shantaras, not just I'm meditating on Krishna's form as observing, but I'm doing some service for Krishna in, in my mood. So eventually that turns into a kind of samadhi. Samadhi is, involves pratyadhara, where your senses are removed from their objects. We all go into a kind of mechanical pratyadhara when we sleep. Right? In deep sleep, the senses have no connection with their objects. And even in dreaming, we enter into a mental world and we lose the external world. So in samadhi, one enters into a mental world of serving Krishna and one's contact with the external world is very limited. So that samadhi, though, is on the platform of the mind. And, and there's a number of purports where Prabhupada speaks about this, that there's two levels of samadhi. Lord Kapiladev talks about using the mind as a hook to capture the Lord. So that's still on the mental platform, still on the material platform. You're taking the subtle body we were talking about, and you're saturating it with spiritual thoughts. Now, as you're saturating the subtle body with spiritual thoughts, remember <coughs> what happens to the subtle body? It dissolves. And the spiritual body awakens. So at a certain point, and this happens at bhava, at bhava, the spiritual body awakens. So then one meditation on Krishna is not coming from the mind. Then one's meditation on Krishna is coming directly from the spiritual platform and one's full spiritual body. At that point, 
all of the 11 items Bhakti Vinotakura mentions of our spiritual identity actually manifest. So up until that time, one's meditating that I'm serving Krishna in this way, I'm serving Krishna in that way, with the mind. And one becomes so absorbed in that that one actually feels that one's living with Krishna, even though it's still on the material platform. And the devotee is experiencing incredible happiness. Even at Nista, devotees experience incredible happiness just from the mode of goodness. But at, at, even at the platform of the Shakti, even at Ruchi, the happiness the devotees experience is incredible. And they're thinking, I'm living with Krishna. I'm with Krishna all the time. But then, when it actually manifests on the spiritual platform, the, the quality is completely different. And then one's spiritual body is really developing. So that's the stage of bhava. And that also happens gradually. One gradually, generally. Always exceptions. Once one starts, oh, that's my name, that's my form, that's my age, that's where I live, this is my service, this is who my teacher is. This is. So in, before then, in a general way, one may say, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm following the footsteps of Madhya Soda, or I'm following the footsteps of Lalita, or I'm following the footsteps of Rupamandra, in a very general way. But after that, then one knows directly, oh, this is my mentor in the spiritual world. And at that stage of bhava, one is externally in this world, but internally one's in the spiritual world. So in, within, one's, within one's internal meditation. And when that's mature, when that's samadhi, so both of those are called samadhi, the final stage of, of mental absorption and the beginning stage of spiritual absorption are both called samadhi, but they're different kinds of samadhi. And of course when one enters bhava, and this happens even to some extent at lower stages, but the sattvaka bhavas, the, the crying and the trembling and the, become manifest. Then at a certain point, and this is described in many places, described with Narada Muni, with Dhruva Maharaj, with King Malaya Dwaja, it's described in Madhuri Kanamani. At a certain point, Krishna, and maybe Krishna Radharani, uh, maybe Krishna with Yasoda and Nanda Maharaj, they decide, you know, we're not really so happy. We're not really satisfied just that you're serving us internally like this. We want to see you face to face. So in those descriptions, you know, the devotee's been accustomed to being absorbed in their, in their spiritual body internally and all of a sudden what happens as they're trying to meditate what happened to Narada to Dhruva what happened to their meditation when Krishna appeared to them outside, first first before they couldn't meditate, they couldn't meditate so they're accustomed to always being there that stage above is what Prabhupada calls spiritual television where the spiritual world is being manifest in the heart and you can even change channels. You can see the Ramchandra channel and the Krishna channel and the Lord Chaitanya channel. And the pastimes in which, you're, in which you participate, you're participating, the ones which you're not participating, you're seeing in separation. But at a certain point in bhava, the devotee's meditation breaks, and they're trying and trying. Come, come on, come back, Krishna. Try right again. And they make every endeavor, and nothing happens. And then the devotee opens their eyes. And who's in front of them? That's Krishna. That's Krishna. At that point, Krishna takes the devotee to the spiritual world. Now, does that mean the devotee dies, what we call dies? Maybe, maybe not. At that point, the devotee's entered into prema. <coughs> and at that point, instead of being in the material world, meditating on the spiritual world, they're in the spiritual world, but they're doing activities in the material world to help the conditioned souls and to do Krishna's business. Is that right? 
Was that longer of an explanation than you wanted? Better than I expected. Better than you expected? Okay. I hope he wasn't thinking, why should he be quiet? But I would, my, my suggestion is that at whatever time that initial realization comes, welcome it. It doesn't come from, it cannot come from the mind. It comes from the spiritual platform. Something on the, from just the mind, I think on this, I think on that, is, is not only worthless but actually dangerous. Yes? How do you tell if you're looking at a picture of a pizza or you're eating a pizza? <laughs> ah, first, it may be difficult. Like, how do you know you're awake? You know, when you're first waking up, you may not be sure you're awake. Was I really awake? Like I said, you know, the point I wasn't sure, am I a kid or am I an adult? Do I play with my dolls or not? I, I wasn't sure. At a certain point, you know, hey, I'm growing up. At a certain point, it becomes indisputable. I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> Yes. Yes. That's just one example. We could give another 20 examples of dichotomies and personality types. And they have any influence on the type of hobbies people take? Oh, oh, yes, definitely. kind of work you do, the kind of hobbies you do, definitely. And what Krishna advises in the Bhagavad Gita is that we should do work that's in accord with our nature. Basically, you figure out what kind of vehicle you have and you drive it accordingly. And you don't envy other vehicles because then you'll get one. Next slide. For example. You know, you, you figure out what do I have? Do I have a bicycle, a skateboard, you know, a Ferrari, a 747? What do I have? And then you, you use that accordingly and use it to go to Krishna. And then you're fine. And don't think, oh, I wish I had a 747, I would have a skateboard. How clever, Krishna. At, at, at age 20. How clever. And the growth rate doesn't slow. And, that, and, and there's a range as when there's that's going to happen. Uh, so some people are probably still growing at 20. Uh, some. No. Yeah, I've people met people some people who are still growing. The great ways to identify that easily is they are still growing. And they don't, they, they fuse. They fuse. They fuse. I have met somebody who is still growing. But then, uh, for somebody who uh, are going to be 
that choke. They tend to throw toes. That'll stimulate that. Make them talk. Some people, some people's bones are fused at the age of eleven or twelve. These actually identify quickly. So the spiritual growth hormone is associating with advanced devotees. So if you if you're really growing slowly, you can hang out with advanced devotees. And what impedes the growth process is offending devotees. That just like stunts the whole process. You know, as soon as you offend devotees, then you just like kind of stop growing. You can even shrink spiritually if you offend devotees, which is really sad. That's like sometimes when you get old, old you know, and you kind of. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned the, the skateboard, you know, somebody's, I got a body, you know, the skateboard, why don't I have a Mercedes? So uh, then it's, uh, it would be the influence of the mode of goodness that one actually accepts that he's a skateboard and a, a, a Mercedes. Yeah. So the more one is influenced by the mode of goodness, the more he's actually able to, able to accept what he is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's very nice. Very, very nicely. Basically, as long as you're human, you can go back to home, back to Godhead in this life, even if all you've got is a skateboard. As long as it's got wheels. You know, or boats will do, I suppose. As long as you have a human vehicle. It's possible in an animal vehicle, but highly unlikely. As long as you have a human vehicle. You know, even if it's sick, even if it's foolish, even if it's whatever. It'll do. Good enough. And if I pretend that my skateboard is an airplane, all I'm going to do is crash. And we've seen that happen to people. We've seen people who only had a skateboard and they said, I wish I had an airplane, you know, and then the next thing we know, they're in the hospital. We've seen people do that spiritually. I'm going to pretend that I have a body I don't have and a mentality I don't have. And the people on the skateboards are going right past them while they're in the hospital bed in traction. Right? Well, we've seen that many times. That would also, also be a, a big factor in uh, when Prabhupada says, uh, <coughs> your love for, for me will be shown by how you cooperate with each other. Uh, so the cooperation can only happen when one accepts what he is and one accepts what he is. What other people are, yeah. And then you cooperate instead of trying to make yourself something else and make everybody else something else. Well, also cooperation is dependent on knowing who you are because when you know who you are, you know that, you have weak, that your strengths in certain circumstances are weaknesses. That all of the things I really like about my personality are only strengths in certain circumstances. And in opposite circumstances, those very things that I'm proud of become weaknesses. And of course, vice versa. Which means that in order to accomplish a movement and a society, I have to work with people who have strengths in my areas of weakness. Or is catastrophic. We have to have teams. We have to cooperate. Otherwise, there's no society. There's no movement. So, so yeah. it's like if a devotee is weak on deity worship, for example, they can appreciate someone who is strong on deity worship. Correct. Because, because that person is strong on deity worship, there's deity worship in my life somehow or other. 
That's right. And, and that even operates in the spiritual world. That's described very nicely in the Bhagavatam, in the third canto. How all the residents of the spiritual world are glorifying each other and appreciating each other's service. Yeah, that's, and it's a, it's a whole atmosphere of appreciation. Whereas the material world is an atmosphere of criticism. So, yeah, you, you can only appreciate when you see that I have areas of strength that are also weaknesses. Every one of my strength is a weakness in a different circumstance. All of them. And that other people who, in my areas of strength, are weak, are strong where I'm, where I'm you know. So, so where, I, where I'm strong, someone else is weak. But that means that they're strong where I'm weak. And therefore, I can appreciate. Appreciating others, I talked about this the other day, also means really appreciating people's sacrifices, not just the results. It's not very encouraging just to appreciate results because none of us can completely control the results. But that's not very satisfying. If I just say, you know, you cooked a great subject, that's not as satisfying as saying, wow, you know, you must have spent a lot of hours in the kitchen working on it. Because you, you can't obviously control whether or not the subject turns out good. All kinds of funny things can happen. So that's also part of appreciation. Appreciating people's sacrifices. Anything else? Yes? Just one point that I thought that was a, it's a very nice mixture because um, the cooperation part of it is kind of like you know, you're working with others and as a team and um, you, know, you can see the st- structure is important. But on the, on the other level, the, the personal advancement is not necessarily absolutely dependent on that. I can, you know, sometimes, how do you say, it's like, a, it's a kind of, a, it's, it's almost seems like, although it does depend on other people, but still it's... probably talked about the birds, the flock of geese flying. So the, the V formation is such that it helps. You know, the geese take turns, who's the leader, because the leader bird has all the stress on them. So they rotate. And the V formation creates movements of air that help all the geese fly better. But each geese, each goose has to fly it on their own. So the other geese are helping, but you know, you still gotta flap your own wings. They're not exactly just carrying you along. As Prabhupada would often say, you know, you have to fly your own plane. So each of us has to take 100% responsibility for our own spiritual advancement. And part of taking 100% responsibility is working cooperatively with other people who are going to help us. But if I think other people are going to carry me, sometimes people think like that. You know, oh, just give me blessings and mercy. you know, Like magic dust or something. I, the, the great devotees can do that just by glancing or just by good wishes, but that's not usually how things work. I remember we talked about the Krishna doesn't interfere with free will. I mean, really, going back to Godhead, Prabhupada says in the first canto, he said, you go back to Godhead just by desiring to do so. The whole point is, what do you want? And Krishna's not going to take you back to Godhead if you don't really want to go. Why? Why? Then you wouldn't stay. So it's 
that we have to do our although we take the help from the society it's a whole lot easier to do it with the society than to do it by yourself any of us who've ever tried to do it by ourselves it's tough that's really tough not very many people can make it by themselves and that's not even recommended and Krishna's not even very fond of that the spiritual world's full of people you know the spiritual world's not a bunch of isolated Himalayan caves in fact, even the grass is alive and the water is alive. You know. There are some instances, like Madhavindapuri traveled without a companion. But generally, generally, being with other like-minded people is, we can say, essential. Generally. Especially at the present time, I mean. When we're surrounded by a society that's screaming the opposite of spiritual life. Get money! <laughs> Buy beer! Especially right here, right? <laughs> the goal of life is to drink beer. And that's everywhere. So it's helpful to have some people who say, I don't really think that's the goal of life. Helps. Otherwise, after a while, you think, well, maybe the goal of life is to drink beer. Yeah, you, you might become distracted. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's probably a very good idea to think that we need the other devotees. At the same time, it's a very good idea to take complete responsibility for our own spiritual life and not say, well, because this devotee isn't Krishna conscious, what can you expect from me? I can't be Krishna conscious. <laughs> How am I supposed to be Krishna conscious when my husband's not Krishna conscious? I hear that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big one. That is a very big one. <laughs> it's his fault that I'm not Krishna conscious. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> well thank you very much for your hospitality I really enjoyed my first trip to Dublin hopefully the immigration officials will let me come back another time (laughs) Uh, I hope I've said something that was useful if I said anything you think was foolish please ignore it I've said anything that was uh, 